0: Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday. Back to work we go. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We're in our nine days format, and we will get to Rabbi Beryl Wine in just a moment. I want to take this opportunity to thank everybody for their good wishes. I want to thank everybody for the incredible outpouring of Mazel Tov wishes and uh, just everybody around the world sharing in our big simcha. Uh, As you know, I was not here Friday. I was on the air via telephone. I was not here Friday. Matis Weingas sat in, and I can't thank him enough. He has uh, sat in on many occasions, both uh, positive and difficult over the decades. And again, he came through (laughs) by being the substitute host on Friday morning because uh, late Thursday night, or relatively late Thursday night, just before 8 p.m., Kayla and Benjamin Siegel became parents of a brand new baby girl, Esther Liel. And on Friday morning, Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, we had the opportunity to be there when the baby was named. And that is the reason why I was not here Friday morning, Matis was in, and I'm glad that on Friday I had an opportunity to explain all of this and to share in the big Simcha with everybody here at JM in the AM. Uh, We've had uh, many wonderful and incredible occasions over the years. We've been able to share it together with our listeners, and this was just another one of those. Thank God, in an amazing category of uh, an amazing category of um, wonderful simcha and tremendous, tremendous joy. That again, we were able to share with people around the world. So, Baruch Hashem, mom and uh, daughter are doing fine. The whole family, Baruch Hashem, her are doing great. So to uh, Kayla and Benjamin Siegel, a very special mazel tov. To um, my wife Stacy, obviously grandmother for the first time. To um, Naomi and Stephen Levinson, Adam Woodmere, grandparents for the first time. To all the grandparents, great grandparents, in the extended family, with a special mazel tov to my wonderful in-laws, Gail and Itzy Weintraub of the Lower East Side, who are enjoying yet another great-granddaughter, Baruch Hashem. Just an amazing feeling, an incredible stage to be at, and I'm so glad we were able to share it with everybody out there here at JM and the AM. Just incredible. Saw Esther Liel yesterday. She's doing amazing, and, uh, she has a very, very, very happy um, set of relatives, from her uh, parents and grandparents to our aunts and uncles, our cousins, everybody that um, that's enjoying this tremendous Simcha Baruch Hashem. We are in our spoken word format. Today is a Monday of the nine days here at JM and the AM. We're going to get to our barrel wine. He's going to speak about Jews in Victorian England, part of his Jewish Societies in Retrospect series. We'll get to that in a moment. And um, information about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures 1 800 499 W E I N, 1 800 499 W E I N, or rabbiwine.com, rabbi W E I N. Dot com. Feel free to comment on the app, go to the NSN, Nahum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. The book is called Daily Dose of Bitachon, and we will speak to her by David Sutton in the third hour this morning. The book, his book, artscroll.com, is the Daily Dose of Bitachon. Again, we will speak to him in the third hour this morning here at JMN. I'm very much looking forward to that interview. Also, our Benji Kramer, brand new Meir Lim coming up. Uh, after the uh, third hour this morning, right after a jam in the a.m. I believe the word today is Av, right? We started the month of Av, we're in the month of Av. I have a son that just became an Av, <laughs> a father, and um, I believe that's the word that the Rabbi Kramer is going to be analyzing this morning during the May Ear Me Limb segment. You are listening to JM in the AM or a Barrel Wine on the topic of Jews in Victorian England. Here at JM in the AM,
1: good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns uh, the reaction and the construction of Jewish society in Victorian England, nineteenth century. Uh, we are convinced now, I think, by uh, events that occurred, uh, that the Lord. Uh, has his plans, and that uh, strange things happen, especially to the Jewish people, unpredictable things. England will play an enormously important role in Jewish history over the past uh, century, and uh, we can say uh, uh, that if we're not for England, Uh, there would be no state of Israel. That doesn't mean that they wanted to have a state of Israel, but they were the catalyst for it. And we are marking now uh, the uh, centennial of the Balfour Declaration. So uh, England has an important place in our story, and that's ironic because in the uh, 13th century, The Jews were expelled from England, and that from the 13th century till the 18th century, 500 years, uh, England was Unrein. There were no Jews in the country. Shakespeare never saw a Jew. Beginning in the 18th century, it really began a little before the time of Oliver Cromwell, the rebellion against the king, the uh, upheavals in uh, England, the rule of parliament over the king, Jews began to trickle back to England. They were all illegal, but no one seemed to bother about it. And uh, in the middle of the 18th century, there already were synagogues in London, the famous Bevis Marks Congregation. And most of the Jews who came were Svartic. And they came from Amsterdam. And the Jews in Amsterdam were Svartic, Spanish-Portuguese Jews, who came to Holland after the expulsion from Spain. Now, England... uh, is going to become a world power. And the advent of Jews in English society uh, is therefore important. I have uh, thought that, for instance, if Jews would have come to the United States at the time that they came to England, it would have had far less of an impact on the Jewish world and on Jewish events because the United States had no impact on the world or on events until practically World War II. But Jews in England, because England is going to become the major player in world society, it's going to be the British Empire, the presence of Jews there takes on an added importance. Uh, and that's all part of the uh, way God runs the world where Jews find themselves so uh, when uh, Queen Victoria in the early 1800s becomes the Queen of England uh, officially Jews have no rights unofficially Jews have many rights and some Jews are powerful. Now, there are different groups of Jews. The Svartim came. The most famous Svartic Jew is naturally the Israeli. And uh, the Svartic Jews uh, were upper class. England was a class society, and uh, the Jews belonged to no class and therefore they could pretend that they were upper class. So those were the Svartic Jews. Then in the middle of the 1800s Ashkenazic Jews came mainly from Germany and then at the end of the 19th century towards the end of the Victorian era you had a mass emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazic Jews, who came to uh, settle in England. And uh, these groups uh, functioned sometimes together, sometimes at odds with each other to constitute Anglo-Jewry. So let's begin the tour. In the early 1800s, England is occupied in the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon, France attempts to dominate Europe. England, in an alliance with Prussia and other countries, eventually defeats Napoleon. When England defeats Napoleon, then England becomes not necessarily the dominant partner in Europe, but it becomes the checkmate against any other country in Europe. And that was British foreign policy. That no one country should be powerful enough to rule uh, Europe. And England would always back the weaker to prevent the stronger from taking over. Now uh, Anshul Mayor Rothschild in the late 1700s Establishes his bank in Frankfurt am Main. He has five sons. Each one of his sons opens up a branch of the bank. And because they trusted each other, uh, you have the concept of international banking across country lines. So in France, in Paris, There's James the Rothschild. And in Frankfurt there's William. And in Vienna there's Solomon. In England there's a man, Nathan Meyer Rothschild. And he comes to England in the early 1800s. And he establishes a branch of the Rothschild Bank. It's called N.M. Rothschild and Company. Now, when he comes to England, uh, he faces great hostility. Uh, The remarkable accomplishments of the Rothschilds uh, are even more remarkable because of the hostility that they faced. And uh, there were other Jewish bankers as well. But the Rothschilds came to dominate the scene. Now, Nathan Rothschild was a traditional Jew. Uh, William was an observant Jew. James was not at all. In fact, the Rothschild house in England, the bank, was closed on Shabbat until the 1920s. And uh, Nathan didn't do business on Shabbat. The Rothschilds perfected the art of floating bonds to uh, finance countries. Uh, for instance, uh, we have that today. All the, uh, the United States owes, what, $19 trillion or something? So how do you pay that off? It means you're missing that money in the treasury. So uh, what happened was that the financial markets of the world kicked the can down the road and they said uh, we will sell bonds backed by the British government, let's say, or the French government. And uh, the bonds pay a certain interest, but they're not due for another 15 years or 30 years, whatever. And uh, the Rothschilds facilitated investors to buy the bonds. And therefore, uh, they were a vital part of the uh, the English Society, and they were a vital part in helping build the British Empire because they financed the deficit. That was Nathan Meyer Rothschild. Now, he wasn't the only one, but they were the major players. They set the market and uh, it became an enormously lucrative business. Because they got a commission, they got a commission from the buyer and a commission from the seller, and they had a spread on the interest rate. And uh, this system is in place today. It's a more, uh, it's more uh, refined. There's the International Monetary Fund. It crosses national lines. But for instance, China has financed the United States over the last 10-12 years. Meaning that they bought the bonds. Whether that has implications other than financial is a matter of discussion. But uh, this is a vast oversimplification of of what goes on. But uh, the Rothschilds played an enormous role in English society, so much so that they could not be ignored. And for the first time, therefore, he had Jews that were in the upper class, that owned the great estates, uh, that imitated the uh, lifestyle of the uh, great and mighty in England. Now, Rothschild had a brother-in-law by the name of Moses Montefiore. Montefiore, as many wealthy men then and now, after a while got tired of making money and devoted his life to philanthropic and national causes and Rontafiori saw himself as the protector of the Jewish people and because of their wealth and because of their influence so he had entree to the queen which was unheard of so for instance in 1840 there was a blood libel in Damascus in Syria was a French priest uh, and there was a boy that disappeared and the priest said that the Jews had kidnapped the boy in order to extract his blood, in order to make matzes. It was 1840. Uh, because of that the uh, leading Jews in Syria then were arrested under torture they admitted to anything and they were to be sentenced to death. Uh, Montefiore uh, obtained a letter from the Queen uh, to the Sultan of Turkey because Syria was then under Turkish rule and uh, he traveled and he defended the Jews And eventually the Turkish authorities came to the conclusion that the Jews were innocent and that it was all a made-up story. And this made Montefiore a hero in the Jewish world. So much so that many Jewish organizations and schools were named after him. I remember in Chicago... There was a Jewish school, the Moshe Montefiore Talmud Torah. In New York, there's a hospital, a Jewish hospital. Throughout the Jewish world, he was famous. Montefiore uh, was not always successful. In 1858, there was a Jewish child that was kidnapped in Italy, in Mantua and forcibly converted to Christianity and the Jews protested the family demanded the return of the child the Pope refused Uh, Montefiore intervened but this time unsuccessfully but Montefiore traveled to the land of Israel seven times lived a long time, lived over a hundred years and uh, travel then was not travel now and his coming to the land of Israel was always seen as a spark of support for Jewish settlement in the land of Israel and we have therefore in Yerushalayim uh, the famous windmill that doesn't work. <laughs> and, but you have the colony, you mean Moshe, named for Montefiore? And his, he was a uh, profound influence. And with this, there's another strange thing that happens. That in England, in the Victorian era, there arises in the Christian world a proto-Zionist movement a movement of Christians who say that Jews should move back to the land of Israel and that the land of Israel belongs to the Jews and this uh, movement uh, expressed itself in all different ways For instance, there were two uh, English Spencer ladies who financed Solomon Schechter to research the Cairo Geniza on behalf of Cambridge University. Uh, The English also uh, sought to protect the Jews who lived in the land of Israel from persecution by the Arabs and the Turks and all of this uh, so Montefiore and the other Jews uh, the Rothschilds all tapped into something in English society that gave it an affinity to the Jewish people there were even those in England in the Victorian era who claimed that the British were the ten lost tribes. Well, that they were a lost tribe we'll agree, but whether they were the ten lost tribes is a different matter. And uh, so there was an undercurrent even though there was very uh, strong anti-Semitism was built into the society, but there was an undercurrent somehow uh, that Jews were going to be tolerated and uh, helped. And when there were great persecutions by the Tsar in Russia, uh, so uh, the British monarchs protested. Now, because of this uh, uh, this relationship, so to speak, uh, for the first time, Jews who wanted to really be English, because Montefiore never really was English, and Rothschild was never really English, but Jews who wanted to be English began to convert to the Anglican Church because that was their entry into English society at the level that they wished. And this uh, really is the story of Disraeli. Disraeli's father was a uh, member in the Bevis Marks congregation in London. Uh, He engaged in a very bitter dispute with the leaders of the congregation and in a uh, fit of pique he converted his two sons to the Anglican Church now it wasn't only because of that he wanted his two sons to get ahead and he felt they couldn't get ahead if they remained Jewish but they kept their undoubtedly Jewish name and uh, Disraeli who was a uh, very talented person he was an author he wrote uh, he became very wealthy from it he wrote dime novels hundreds of them and uh, he had great political ambitions and he was somewhat of a character. He wore outlandish clothing, green pants and a yellow vest, not typically British. But uh, he got himself elected to Parliament as a conservative, as a Tory. He was a good speaker, and he was never uh, lacking in self-confidence. And he would uh, rise in the ranks of the conservative party. He met a great deal of anti-Semitism. He had a unique way of deflecting it. He didn't say, well, now I'm Anglican and I converted and I'm as good a Christian as you are. Which is what the other Jews did to try to deflect the anti-Semitism against them he said on the other hand no he said uh, my ancestors were priests in the temple in Jerusalem when London was a marsh I come from a family he said he came from King David I have royal blood in me I'm better than you Which was really a different tack completely. And because of his talents and his abilities, he rose to become the Prime Minister of England. A very unlikely event. And he had strong connections with the Queen, he was one of the Queen's favorites. Now, England at that time had two major political parties, uh, the Liberal Party, uh, which was headed by uh, William Gladstone, and the Tories, which was headed by Disraeli. Uh, Gladstone, the Liberal Party, uh, would eventually morph into the Labour Party. And that was the party that most English Jews favored and voted for. But the Israeli was of such a consequence that he was able to pass a bill and it was called the Jew Bill. In England they're very direct. It's Jew's college. So it was called the Jew Bill which to a great extent legalized uh, Jewish Entry and citizenship and rights in the England. And uh, this was done, uh, this is one of the products of the Victorian era. And because of it, it encouraged emigration of Jews to England. The idea of quotas then. It didn't exist. It didn't exist in the United States, and it didn't exist anywhere in the Western world. All of this came about later. It came about later because of the vast numbers of immigrants that chose in the 18th, and 19th, and 20th centuries. Uh, Europe emptied out. In the 1800s, uh, more Irish left Ireland than stayed. There was a great famine in Ireland. They came to the United States, they came to England. Uh, Italy emptied out, and Eastern Europe started to. And uh, you had Eastern European Jews who started to come to England in numbers already in the middle of the 1800s. and they came to uh, the east end of London to Manchester and to other places they were Ashkenazic shtetl Jews they were not Montefiores they were not Rothschilds they were not part of the upper class and they didn't see themselves as part of the upper class but England would provide for them a haven and if they did not uh, become English, uh, they hoped and were certain that their children and grandchildren would certainly become English and fit in. So as the Jewish community grew, organizations, Jewish organizations took hold. And One of them was uh, the United Synagogue, which was an organization of synagogues and the United Synagogue in the 1860's decided to uh, create an office called the Chief Rabbi Uh, the Chief Rabbi was meant to uh, represent uh, the Jewish world to the non-Jews but it was also meant to centralize Jewish life in England. Also, the establishment of a beddin, uh, the establishment of some sort of order that it, uh, which, for instance, in the United States never happened. The United States, as far as Jewish life was concerned, was always the Wild West. It was always chaotic. But the English system and temperament and society did not tolerate such a chaotic situation. And therefore uh, the United Synagogue uh, searched for a chief rabbi. It's interesting, there were two uh, candidates, none of them English, both of them from Germany. One was uh, the chief rabbi Nathan Adler. Now Adler was a great Talmud Chacham, great rabbinic scholar, and he wrote a uh, famous commentary uh, to the Bible and to its commentators called Nassino Laguerre. And he was a very well-respected, well-known rabbinic figure. He certainly gave stature to the office. The other candidates, interestingly enough, was Samson Raphael Hirsch who uh, was not elected and you know one of the great ifs, what ifs is what would the English Jewry look like today had Hirsch been elected the chief rabbi instead of Adler but Adler uh, immediately embarked on making it English uh, English translation of the prayer book said it was going to be an authorized version that was going to be the siddhar that was going to be used that was traditional done but it was translated into English uh, the Chumish was translated into English etc etc things which in Eastern Europe could not happen there was no one that was translating the sitter into Polish or Lithuania. And uh, anglo jewry therefore uh, became uh, attempted to become homogenized in England. And the uh, office and institution of the chief rabbi has certainly lent itself to doing so. The chief rabbi since then has undergone uh, Uh, many uh, changes, the world changes but basically uh, it remains a uh, position of influence and to a certain extent a position of whatever you want to make of it how do you want to treat it Uh, but as an institution it exists and uh, only lately are the uh, chief rabbis English-born themselves. Most of them came from. My uh, Hertz came from the United States. Uh, the other ones were from Germany. But that lent the flavor to uh, Anglo Jewry and to what it was. There's a flood of immigrants that come to England. The population goes from less than 5,000 at the be- beginning of the century. The end of the century there's over a quarter of a million. Um, that brings about a reaction. So there were uh, anti-Jewish riots in England. Uh, whether we can call them pogroms or not, but they were on that scale. Especially if uh, Jewish merchants or Jewish workmen uh, replaced uh, the British in the undergoing changes in British economic society. And uh, because of that, for instance, uh, Theodore Herzl, when he uh, proposed that Jews uh, make a state here in the land of Israel, so he testified before a parliamentary committee in the British Parliament. And the main uh, thrust of his testimony was that England should support it because otherwise they'll come to England. And that resonated, so that you had England offering Uganda as a Jewish state, Uh, England uh, favoring Zionism because of the internal pressure. So it wasn't because Jews were influential, that only came later. It was because there were too many Jews. And the flood of Jews itself uh, created problems. The Jews, whatever, were uh, able to uh, uh, rise to high positions or even to uh, professorships. Or it, was, uh, it was not till the 20th century and even later in the 20th century Uh, that all those doors, so to speak, were open. But uh, the Jews were inspired by the fact that uh, England was an open society and that there was a chance for them that did not exist in Eastern Europe, and they wanted to take advantage of it. There were a lot of unscrupulous uh, boat captains And he took uh, Jews on board uh, in Germany and in uh, northern Poland, etc. And they said they're taking them to America. And they let them off in England or in Ireland. But wherever the Jews landed, they felt they were better off than where they had come from. Even if it was not their intended goal. And again, uh, uh, after Disraeli was no longer prime minister, as often happens, uh, he grew in stature. He was called Lord Beaconsfield. And uh, the press, which had treated him badly, and had mocked him, and had pointed out his Jewishness, and when Disraeli originally got up in Parliament to speak... He was heckled by people that would holler old clothes for sale what are you peddling today? But uh, after he had uh, been prime minister etc all of that waned and he became a uh, heroic figure. Now the Jews didn't know how to deal with him because on one hand he was so Jewish, and he accomplished a lot for the Jewish people. On the other hand, he was an apostate, was someone that was a, that had done uh, what Jews had always avoided doing—converting—and that remained uh, till today an issue. I know there's a street here called Israeli, and. Uh, there were great protests here in Jerusalem when the uh, board that decides on the names of the streets uh, did so. And their answer was they put them in the streets with the non-Jews, with Wedgwood and the other ones who are not jewish But uh, he posed uh, he posed a dilemma that faced... Uh, certain type of Jew living in England in Victorian times and the fact that there was tolerance etc but if you really wanted to get ahead you could not do so unless you were going to convert to Christianity and uh, that was a very serious issue now England became the empire of the world under Victoria the Israeli helped Um, it took over India England the, the sun never set on the British flag and here you had a small island that controlled a quarter of the world and that taxed great resources contrary to belief empire is very expensive. Most empires collapse because they can't finance it anymore. It's too big, too much. Can't control it. Uh, we've seen that in our time too. Uh, all of the empires that have collapsed, you know, they can't do it anymore. So they were heavily dependent on Uh, on uh, the Rothschild Bank and on the sale of bonds and on the British Navy. England decided that the only way they could rule the empire didn't have armies big enough. The British Army was a professional army, but it was small. But the Navy, the Navy Britannia rules the waves. And because England saw itself as the major naval power in the world, it could maintain its empire. In maintaining its empire, it also allowed Jews a place to go, because if you could go to England, suddenly you can go to South Africa, or you can go to Australia, or you go to Hong Kong, which Jews did And uh, it was mainly uh, because of the fact that England controlled the Cape Colonies that the Lithuanian Jews started to come to South Africa. Later in the 20th century, when the Boer War happened and England took over all of South Africa, so then that was the catalyst for Jews to come because they felt that under the British Empire, they to be treated with the ability to advance in the world. Australia, which began as a British penal colony, so the joke that they tell, I don't think it's true, but they say that uh, on the first penal ships, so they emptied the jails to send convicts to Australia. So there were nine Jews. So the Jews sent back a note and the next shipment sent us another convict so that we would be able to have a quorum and be able to have a minion. There's no question that uh, Jews emigrated to British colonies in numbers that they did not do, for instance, to French colonies or to German colonies. They did so because of the example of England, and because of how England developed, now the Eastern European Jews that came to England in the, in the 1800s, so there were great uh, scholars, great Talmid Chachomin that came, but they found it hard to adjust. It was same thing was true in America. They found it very hard to do, somehow adjust amongst themselves. Uh, And uh, they also were visited regularly by uh, rabbis and money collectors from Eastern Europe. Because uh, as poor as the Jews were in England, they were better off than the Jews were in Lithuania. And since everybody had a relative or he had somebody that he knew, that had emigrated, so therefore uh, people had lists of names of people of addresses in London, etc. and they came to collect money and uh, this is the history of the Jewish people generally is that the money collectors were to cross fertilization of societies and of bringing Torah to places that didn't have it before so for instance in the late 1800's the great Rabbi Eleazar Gordon who was a disciple of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and the founder of the great yeshiva at Tels in Lithuania and he was the head of the yeshiva He was the rabbi in Tells, Came to London to collect money. And uh, unfortunately, he took ill and he died in London. And he's buried in London. But it had a profound effect on London Jewry. Uh, I heard it from a number of rabbis who said they heard it from their teachers, that there was like a tremendous guilt feeling that they had not done enough for him, that they really didn't appreciate it. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, English Jewry generally was more open to accepting Immigrants from Eastern Europe than, let us say, American Jewry, which was run by the Reform, uh, that did not in the 1870s or 1880s want any Jews from Eastern Europe to come and put many an obstacle in the way of any immigration to America. Whereas that did not happen in uh, London. There's a famous legend, I don't, I heard it, that the uh, rabbi who eulogized, Rabbi Gordon, he passed away uh, in the uh, portion of the Torah where uh, Yosef appeals to Paro to be freed. So Yosef said, "Kigunav gunavti merits o yivrim, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, really. I didn't come here willingly. And here I didn't do anything. I'm not guilty of any crime. And they put me into jail for no reason. That's what Yosef said to Para. So the uh, Safdan, the uh, man who eulogized Rabbi Gordon said, Kigunov Gunavti merits of Ivrim. Rabbi Gordon came from the land of the Jews, from Eastern Europe. And he didn't want to come. He didn't want to come to uh, take a tour of London. He came because of financial duress. He had to support the yeshiva. Become Polo Muma, but he didn't do much here. People didn't treat him right. They didn't. Uh, they didn't contribute. So he said, of Samuli Babor. and now they put me in the pit. Now I'm buried there. And I'm told that that has been made a uh, great impact on London Jewry, and so that the uh, the connection between Eastern Europe and London Jewry was much stronger in the end of the 1800s than, let us say, the connection was between Eastern Europe and the Jewish immigrants in the United States. Of course, we're talking about a much smaller community, but nevertheless, that was a sizable community. Uh, There also was pressure to uh, hire Jews to make a Jewish chair so to speak, in colleges in England. And Jews began to occupy higher positions in higher education. After a period of time, uh, Jews would become uh, almost uh, overrepresented in the uh, fields of education and the arts because Jews were always that way and uh, that had a profound effect on Jewish life and general life in England as well so the Victorian era, the 1800's is really what set up what happened in the 1900's and we could say to a great extent if it were not for Disraeli or Rabbi Adler Montefiore or Nathan Mayer Rothschild, there never would have been a Balfour Declaration because the mood of England would not have been attuned to it. You would not have seen it in that fashion. And uh, the, uh, the fact that uh, uh, the Jews had uh, achieved in England under uh, Queen Victoria, what they had not achieved in any other country in Europe. Even in Germany they hadn't achieved to that extent. So that played a great role in how Jews in England viewed themselves and how the Jewish world generally viewed England. And even though in the 20th century uh, there would be uh, great disputes and even violence, and England would not fulfill the role that it could have fulfilled. But nevertheless, it remained a bulwark for the Jewish people. And therefore, uh, anglo Jewry saw itself as being important and vital and creative. And even though it's much smaller today, it still sees itself in that light. And has this type of a role to play in Jewish life.
0: This Jewish societies in retrospect is the name of this series by Rabbi Beryl Wine. Again, Jewish societies in retrospect, and this specific lecture is entitled "Jews in Victorian England." Jews in Victorian England. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures: one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N, one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N, or Rabbiwine.com, Rabbi Wine.com, Rabbi JM and the AM, a very special hello to our friends up at Camp Missora. Love the uh, video from last week where we were part of their um, week's activities, the big broadcast from up in camp last week. Much appreciated. Thank you to Dina and Ari Katz, everybody up at Camp Missora, their staff and campers for making us feel so welcome. Uh, on Friday, Matis sat in. At the last minute, Matis uh, was able to arrange to sit in Friday morning, and I thank him. That's happened many, many times over the last 40 years, and I thank him profusely for that. And uh, the reason was the um, the birth of our granddaughter, still amazing when I say it, which took place on Thursday night, and uh, Kayla and Benjamin Siegel were then able to name her on Friday morning, Rosh Chodesh. And I very much wanted to be there, and I was, Baruch Hashem. And um, as many of you heard last week, the baby is named for my mother. Her name is uh, Esther Liel. And um, a very special mazel tov to my wife, Stacy, who is now a grandmother to the 11 sins, Naomi and Stephen and Woodmere, who are now grandparents, uh, all the great-grandparents including my in-laws, Gail and Itzy Weintraub on the Lower East Side, as uh, we are celebrating and continuing to celebrate <laughs> the uh, wonderful news of the birth of Esther Liel Siegel. And again, I want to thank everybody. big thank you to Mattis. big thank you to Malcolm, who was extremely <laughs> understanding about the weekly update being postponed. And a very, very big thank you to everybody who... Um, extended Mazel tov wishes and greetings and wonderful messages from all around the world. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. We have our, our series from Iberal Wine continuing as we uh, are in our spoken word nine days format here at J M M. The rest of the day is uh, an acapella format. Coming up later on in hour number three we're by David Sutton. The book is called... Um, The book is called Daily Dose of Bitachon. Daily Dose of Bitachon. um, Daily Dose of Faith. We get to speak to him in the third hour this morning here at JMNam. Go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio. Every time you order anything from artscroll.com, free shipping and great discounts if you use promo code radio. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. rather' we're the world, web back. at AlchemSigil.com, on the AlchemSigil Network, and of course, any beloved NSN app.
2: Guys <laughs> right, in the background, we'll do our news from
0: Israel coming up. Feel free to comment on the app, go to the NSN AlchemSigil Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. A week of uh, spoken word programming here at JM in the AM. Coming up right after Jam and the Am is our Benji Kramer. The word of the day is Av. I assume both the month of Av and the fact that uh, now I have a son who is an Av, a father. Uh, that's coming up right after uh, Jam and the Am this morning. I Benji Kramer may hear me limb with an analysis of the Hebrew language. Today the word is Av. On this fourth day in the month of Av. Shalit <laughs> Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. Newscast for a uh, Monday is next. We say Boker Tov from Jam in
3: the Am. Rav, <laughs> Rani משבר קיצור התורנויות למתמחים לאחר הודעות המדינה לבית המשפט כי המתווה המתוכנן יצא לפועל רק בחודש ספטמבר בעוד שנה יושבת ראש ארגון המתמחים מרשם הדוקטור רי ביטון מצירה אם עד 25 בחודש לא יצא לפועל המתווה אלפי מתמחים התפטרו הממשלה הזאת נכשלה מקצועית וערכית גם כי לא עמדה בשום התחייבות ובשום הסכם איתנו וגם כי ממשיכה פוגענית ומסוכנת
4: בתנאים של עבדות עם עד
2: לתאריך 25 לשמינים ראש הממשלה לא ישנה את
3: ההחלטה המבללה הזאת אנחנו נאלץ להוציא לפועל התפטרות המוני של מאות ואלפי מתמחים מכל בתי החולים בארץ מדברי הבי כתבנו בר שמעון לוי לקראת הדיון בבת המשפט משרדי ההבחה וביטחון הפניים גיבשו מענה עבור האישה מילאות שהמשטרה ביקשה לשים במעצר הגנתי בעקבות איומים ברצח העברתה לדירה מאובטחת האישה צפויה לדחות את מדווה אחת כתבתנו על עניין הרווחה, מאיה
2: בשעה זו יחל בבית המשפט דיון בערר שהגישה האישה. אם הוא ידחה וההחלטה על מעצר הגנתי תישאר תקפה, משרד הרווחה והמשרד לביטחון פנים מציעים חלופה, העברתה של האישה לדירה מאובטחת שתובטח על ידי חברה פרטית שמספקת שירותים למשרד הרווחה בשיתוף עם המשטרה. הצעה זו תלויה באישור בית המשפט ובנכונות של האישה לעבור לדירה שכזו.
3: המסע המתן בן ישראל ללבנון לקביעת הגבול הימי. סגן יושב ראש הפרלמנט הלבנוני אומר היום כי הפער בין הצדדים מצטמצם, בקרוב ישוב המתווך שנית לבהירות עם תשובות. לדבריו איש לו ביקש מלבנון לחלק שטחים בים השייכים לה. כמו כן המתווך לא הציע מודל של חלוקת רווחים עם או בעלות משותפת עם העל הגז. כדיעה שמסער כתבנו לעניינים ערביים, ג'קי חוגי. המאבק ביוקר המחיה לאחר הכרזת ההסתדרות בשבוע שעבר על חרם צרחנים נגד חברות שיקרו מוצרים. סגן השר אביר קרה מרוח ציונית תוקף יושב ראש ההסתדרות ואומר לאמיר איבגי בגלי צהל. בר דוד עושה יחצנות על גבם של אזרחי ישראל.
1: أنا הרי יותר גדולה מהנושא הזה של ארנון בר דוד, שבו שהסתדרות, האיש שהושק את המשק הישראלי באופן קבוע. והאיש הזה, למעשה מה שהוא עכשיו, הוא פשוט יחצנות על הגב של אזרחי ישראל. להסתדרות יש תקציב של מיליארד שקל בשנה. אם
3: הם רוצים להקל על יוקר המחיה, הם יכולים לעשות זה בחר, בבוקר, בלי להתאמת. הם לא צריכים אפילו לעשות הרבה, רק להשוק פחות. וההסתדרות נמצר בתגובה עצר לנו שמר אביר קרה מחפש כותרות על גבה של ההסתדרות בשעה שהוא במערכת בחירות ובשעה שההסתדרות מנהלת מאבק מהחשובים ביותר שנועלו במדינת ישראל, די לגימיקים. מזג האוויר ללא שינוי ניכר בטמפרטורות. אלה החדשות שאורך רואי ולד. JM and the AM, hour
0: number two on a Monday, spoken word format. We are uh, in the nine days here at JM and the AM in the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, we'll do our acapella selections uh, later on today during the um, uh, during the network presentation all through the day. And um, we use the JM and the AM slot to uh, present Dry Barrel Wines lectures and to do some... Uh, Interviews coming up an hour from now, Rabbi David Sutton is going to join us. Daily Dose of Bituchon is the name of the book. We get a chance to speak with him about it. Go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio. Daily Dose of Bituchon, Rabbi David Sutton. We speak to him an hour from now. Uh, lectures by Barrel Wine. Information available at one 800 wein one wein or RabbiWine.com. You can go to RabbiWine, for more information, again, that's 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. It is the 1st of August. Wow. I almost didn't realize it was the 1st of August, the 4th day in the month of Av. Uh, we're in a 9 days format here at JM in the AM. The first 7 months of 2022 are already passed, huh? That is hard to believe. What can I tell you? Um, I want to thank listener Moshe. He pointed out that uh, our granddaughter was born on the happiest day of the year because the build up from Rosh Chodesh Av continues until the decrease of joy starts on uh, the uh, the build up until Rosh Chodesh Av. Right from Rosh Chodesh Adar until Rosh Chodesh Av continues until we start to lessen the joy in Rosh Chodesh Av, and of course. Our granddaughter was born minutes before the end of Erev Shodesh Av, so in a way it was the happiest day of the year. I can tell you one thing, it was certainly, <laughs> well, we've had, Baruch Hashem, we've had great simcha over these last few months, uh, so this was certainly one of the happiest days of this year for us, that's for sure. Um, just amazing, absolutely amazing. Listener Silky welcomes me to the amazing club. Thank you, Silky, <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, Cohen GL Mazal Tov. That's from Yitzchak in Kemp Mill, Maryland. Thank you very much. And listener Tikva says, Boker Tov Mazel Tov. Vishuv mazal Tov. Safta Stacy, Vissaba Nachum. Thank you very much for that. Some great messages. We've gotten some amazing messages from around the world over the last uh, few days. And I thank everybody for, um, showering us with blessing and with, uh, kind words. Just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. This one is called Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine. Information 1 800 499 WEIN, 1 800 499 WEIN, or rabbiwine.com.
1: Tonight's lecture concerns itself uh, with the Jews in Ottoman Palestine before uh, England took over after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire uh, existed for uh, 500 years. When an empire exists for 500 years, and let's say you're living in year 300 of the 500, so you're convinced that it'll be there forever, because it was there 300 years before you, There's no reason to think it won't keep on going after you. But history shows that uh, no empire exists forever. No country's dominance over others exists forever. And that uh, the uh, rise and descent of empires is really the story of history. The Ottoman Empire was founded by a uh, someone from the Caucasus, a Turk, by the name of Osman. In the uh, 13th century, the Europeans changed Osman to Ottoman. I guess they spoke (laughs) Svardit. And that's why it's called the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the goal of the Ottoman Empire was to destroy the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was the Christian Empire. It was the eastern part of the previous Roman Empire. It had existed from the time of uh, Constantine the Great in about 320 uh, for almost a thousand years. Its capital was Constantinople. And in Constantinople, there was a great church called the Church of Saint Sophia, built by Constantine. And it was the center of Eastern Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Slavic uh, Orthodox religions, in contradistinction to the Roman Catholics. And uh, It was a very powerful empire and it ruled over Palestine. And it was terribly anti-Jewish to the extent that uh, the Jewish community in Palestine evaporated under its rule. Uh, When the Ramban came here in 1267, he could not find the 10 Jews in Jerusalem. The Byzantines had uh, benefited from the Crusades, the Crusades had turned the mosques on the Temple Mount into churches, Uh, but the uh, Ottomans, who were Muslims but not Arabs, were determined to crush the Byzantine Empire and restore the entire Middle East to Muslim control. And they were fierce and they were warlike. And they waged war constantly for 100, 150 years against the Byzantines. And finally, they conquered the Byzantines. And they took over Easton, uh, Constantinople renamed it Istanbul, and pushed into Europe. Uh, They uh, conquered all of the Balkans, including the city of Belgrade. They conquered Greece, large parts of Hungary, up to the Romanian border. And, uh, and they were at the gates of Vienna. There the uh, Pope rallied the Christian powers in Europe to stop them. And that was like the high point, the zenith of the Ottoman Empire. And from then on, which were in the middle of the 16th century on, the Ottoman Empire began a slow but steady decline. Now, the ruler of the Ottoman Empire, they are different rulers, some of them are very well known to us. For instance, Suleiman the Magnificent, he was a very modest person, (laughs) but he built the walls of Jerusalem, the walls that exist today. He built them on the uh, foundation of uh, many of the walls that Herod had built at the time of the temple, but he built them now in medieval style, as you can see with the slits for the archers to shoot through, the turrets, the walkways on top of the walls. And he made Jerusalem in his day impregnable, because there was no way to destroy those walls. He also, uh, they took back the churches and converted them back into mosques. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, then the Mosque of the Golden Dome, the Mosque of Omar. Now uh, there were many Jews under Ottoman rule, and uh, the Ottomans were uh, not friendly to the Jews. They had many decrees against the Jews. You couldn't walk on the same sidewalk as a Muslim. You had to wear uh, shoes of two different colors. All sorts of shameful things. But uh, in relative comparison to the treatment of the Jews in Christian Europe, they were very benign. And they had a concept called dhimmi. DHIWMI The Dhimmi concept was that aside from the muslims the quran which is the true faith according to them uh, there are what they call people of the book which is a phrase that muhammad used jews use it to name themselves but it's re- the origin is really Muslim, not Jewish. The people of the book uh, that believed in the Bible, so they believed in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. They also believed that there was a person called Yishmael. Uh, They were the people of the book. The book was the basis for the Muslim religion in many respects and therefore the people of the book uh, were not considered to be infidels per se which the Christians were but they were considered to be dhimmis. Dimmis means second or third class citizens who have a right to live in the country But under Muslim rule and under the decrees and laws of the Muslim rulers. But they are not to be expelled. And uh, basically speaking, uh, for a thousand years, the Jews in this part of the world uh, did not know what a pogrom was. Whereas in Europe, it was an everyday occurrence. The uh, relationship of the Ottoman Empire to the Jews, therefore, was mixed. Uh, in order to be an officer or to have a high position in the court of the Sultan, one had to convert to Islam. But many Jews. Uh, converted only pro forma on the outside and they remained Jews on the inside and they held high positions and uh, the Muslims winked at it. Uh, they were aware that the Jewish converts were uh, mostly insincere but uh, they put up with it because they needed them. The Jews knew languages, the Jews had relatives in Christian countries, the Jews could uh, do trade with Christian countries, and uh, therefore uh, the Jews were, uh, if not welcome, they were certainly not objected to. After the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, large numbers of Svartic Jews, Spanish Jews, came to live under the Ottomans. And there were great Jewish communities in Syria, in Aleppo, and in Damascus. There were great Jewish communities in Egypt, in old Cairo, Fostat, and in Alexandria. But there was almost no Jewish settlement in the land of Israel per se. There were a lot of Jews that lived in Turkey, in Adrianople, in Constantinople, in Istanbul, in Beirut, but not here. In the uh, 16th century, you first got Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, especially in Swat and in the Galilee, and a small Jewish settlement here in Jerusalem. Now, uh, after every tragedy, a major tragedy in the Jewish world. Uh, there is a revival of the messianic spirit because, uh, according to Talmudic sources, the uh, messianic era is always preceded by a, a time of troubles, time of pain and travail. It's compared to childbirth. And uh, the uh, Jews who settled here in the land of Israel uh, had uh, a messianic fervor. So there was an attempt to renew the Sanhedrin because, according to Maimonides, the uh, renewal of uh, a Jewish court system has to precede the messianic era. So there was a determined effort to renew the Sanhedrin. Now you couldn't renew the Sanhedrin because the ordination for the Sanhedrin, the smicha, had expired for over a millennium, a millennium, and only somebody who had the smicha could give the smicha. So how could you renew the Sanhedrin? So for that again Maimonides came to the rescue And uh, he posited that if the rabbis living in the land of Israel gathered together and decided that one of them was worthy of the smicha, then they could grant him the smicha and then he in turn would grant the smicha to others. This happened in in the 1540s. Rabbi Yaakov Berav received the smicha and he gave smicha to others, including Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. But he was opposed by other rabbis in the country, especially the rabbi in Jerusalem. and uh, eventually it became clear that you could not have a Sanhedrin that half the rabbis agreed to and half the rabbis didn't agree to. It would only defeat the purpose. So the idea died. Perhaps that was the idea that inspired Rabbi Yosef Karo to write the Shulchan Aruch because if he couldn't have a live Sanhedrin he could have a book that was the Sanhedrin that decided, so to speak, all matters of Jewish law that were then on the table. In any event, the Messianic fervor uh, burst through completely in the Ottoman Empire a hundred years later, when Shabzai Tzvi, uh proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Shabzai Tzvi lived, originally he was from Egypt, he lived in uh, the land of Israel, Uh, his uh, assistant and publicist was Nason Oazosi, Nathan of Gaza, and uh, he established himself as the Jewish Messiah, and uh, approximately a third of the Jewish people believed in him. Including many great rabbis. And he held court as though he were the Messiah. People traveled from all over the world to see him. Naturally, there was a fee. No Messiah comes cheap. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, It was the talk of Europe, not only Jewish Europe, but the non-Jewish Europe as well. It's mentioned in all the diplomatic uh, messages of the ambassadors of the time uh, that somehow the Jews have a Messiah in the land of Israel. The Sultan uh, tired of the game and he arrested Shafzai and he put him in house arrest in Turkey. But uh, Nathan said, uh, this is only a test for the faithful, to see if you really believe in him. And only those who really believe in him will be privileged to witness the redemption. And therefore, he uh, continued to be the Messiah. People still came to see him in, their, in where he was under house arrest. Eventually, the Sultan tired of that as well, and he told Shabzai Tzvi, either you publicly uh, convert to Islam, or I will behead you. So he publicly converted to Islam and he became a courtier in the sultan's court. And needless to say, that deflated the Jewish world completely, and it has effect until today. So the Jews remained throughout the 1600s, 1700s, in these circumstances under Ottoman rule, With a very, very limited population in the land of Israel. Beginning in the middle of the 1700s for some reason, because there's no logic to this, and no logic to anything in Jewish history, Jews started to come to the land of Israel. European Jews, Ashkenazic Jews mainly, but Sephardic Jews as well. They came mainly to observe the commandments that exist here in the land of Israel and to be buried here.
0: J.M. in the AM, we are talking about the uh, Jews in the Ottoman Empire in Palestine, getting to a very interesting part of this conversation, or this lecture, I should say, by Rabbi Wine, and we'll continue with more after Rabbi Goldwasser. This morning here at JM and the AM. It's a Monday. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks again to everybody for all the Mazel Tov wishes. My big, big thank you to Matis for taking care of the show on Friday. While we were at the naming of our granddaughter, Esther Liel. And she's doing well. Baruch Hashem and Mazel Tov to the Seagulls and the Levinson's and the Weintraubs and the extended families from all of us here at JM and the AM. Um, Listener Danielle, who was here a couple of Fridays ago, he says carpool comes in many forms. Today it's driving the older kids to run child care for the teacher's kids during prep week. Regards from back here in Atlanta. Listener Daniel, thank you, Daniel. <laughs> Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Signal Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. It is a, a Monday morning. A big, big uh, hello to our friends up at Camp Missora in Guilford, New York, where we were part of their a big end of week video. It was an honor to be part of it as they reviewed the activities of the week and our broadcast from there, which was a lot of fun and really an incredible uh, and exhilarating experience uh, that made it into the videos. That was really cool, and I thank them very much for that. Uh, and I thank all of you for tuning in to our spoken word format here at JM the AM. We're going to go, of course, through Tisha B'Av, which is Sunday, being observed this year on Sunday, even though it's Shabbos. And then uh, we'll be back into our regular format by as please God, on Monday morning right here at JM in the AM. Uh, don't forget our friends at Artscroll.com. When you go to artscroll.com, make sure to use promo code radio. Today we are going to be speaking with her by David Sutton. The book is entitled A Daily Dose of Bitachon, Filling Your Day with Trust and Resilience on Hashem. Um... There's so much in this book, it's it's unbelievable. <laughs> There's just so much, and we can't recommend this highly enough. This is a topic that I've been discussing on the air in a variety of forms in recent weeks. And um, Rabbi Sutton, based on Shah B'Tachon, has put together an incredible book entitled A Daily Dose of B'Tachon, A Daily Dose of Faith. Um... Anyway, so uh, we speak to him at 8 o'clock this morning. A half hour from now, we speak to by Sutton on the air here at JM in the AM, and we're very, very much looking forward to that. Very, very much looking forward to his appearance here on JM in the AM. We'll have that uh, for you coming up at 8 o'clock. Go to com If you order a daily dose of B'Tochon or anything you order at Artscroll.com, make sure to use promo code radio for your free Shipping and your discount. Make sure to use promo code radio at artscroll.com. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words. Zechonishmas of Zebner and Levy. Zechonishmas Esther Basra of Here is Rabbi David
5: Goldwasser with Morning chizuk. Good morning. On the day when the enemies entered into the city of Yushalayim, they destroyed the base of Mikdash. However, there was one Jew who was living outside Yerushalayim He was plowing the earth with his cow. Suddenly, the cow fell on the ground. He was groaning and did not want to move. The man was frustrated, and he kept striking the cow, but the cow didn't want to get up. Then he heard a voice call out, What do you want from the cow? Leave her alone. She is crying because of the destruction of the Besamikdash. The man immediately tore Kriya, he put ashes on his head, and he cried out, Ali, Unali, woe is to me. After two or three hours, the cow got up and began to seemingly dance around. The man was now totally confused. A voice called out, Plow and plant, because at this moment, Mashiach is born. He ran to wash his face, and he rejoiced. He took long strips of ribbon from his house in order that he would have them for children to play with. He went to celebrate. He went to a shalayim where he tried to sell the ribbons for babies to play with. Who wants to buy these ribbons for their son or daughter? The neighbor of the mother of Mashiach heard it and said the following, Go to such and such a house where a baby boy was just born. When he came to the house, he offered the woman to buy the ribbon for her son. She said to him, no, I will not buy it because he was born on the day when the Besamikdash was destroyed. Oror hayon, cursed is the day on which he was born. The man immediately went to the child, kissed him on his head and gave him the ribbon. His mother began to pray for him while the man left the child and returned home. Every year, the man would return to Jerusalem to visit the boy whose name was Menachem ben Amiel. One year, when he came to visit, the mother raised her voice and said, "Ein lo Menachem, shahar Nignaz." Menachem is not here because he is hidden from us. Since that time, we have been looking for Mashiach Tzidkenu to come and finally redeem us from the golos that we're in. Bez Hashem, may it be the will of Hashem that we see the coming of Mashiach quickly within our days. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
0: J.M. and the AM, thank you very much Rabbi Goldwasser. More coming up here at J.M. and the AM and our spoken word. Nine days format, Rabbi uh, Beryl Wein. His series of uh, lectures are available at one 800 wein 1-800-499-WEIN, or dot Rabbi com. We're talking about the uh, series right now on the Jewish societies in retrospect. This is the lecture on Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine, and uh, Rabbi Wein is just getting to that interesting part, to, to an even more interesting part now about the movement of Jews to Palestine. Here it is, Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine, Rabbi Beryl Wein on JM in the AM.
1: in the land of Israel. Beginning in the middle of the 1700s for some reason, because there's no logic to this, and no logic to anything in Jewish history, Jews started to come to the land of Israel. European Jews. Ashkenazic Jews mainly, but Sephardic Jews as well. They came mainly to observe the commandments that exist here in the land of Israel and to be buried here because according to Jewish tradition being buried in Israel is a uh, kapora, it's a uh, forgiveness for sins. So Jews came. They didn't come in big numbers but they came. So for the first time the Ottoman Empire is faced since the uh, expulsion of Jews from Spain. So 200 years later, all of a sudden there's a trickle of Jews that are coming to live in the country. Now you didn't need a passport then, you didn't need a visa, The borders were open. Whoever wanted to come, could come. The country itself was completely desolate. Had no economy, had no natural resources, had a very small population. The city of Jerusalem probably had a thousand people. main other cities, Svat, Tiberias, Hevron, were equally as small. And they were not Jewish. The population there was Arab. And much of it was Bedouin Arab, when, meaning there were nomads. They didn't uh, settle anywhere. And it was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there were places where the Ottoman Empire could collect taxes, Egypt, Syria, because Iraq, because those were places that had an economy. But here where there was no economy, there was no one to collect taxes from. The system of the Ottoman Empire was decentralized rule. In other words, the Sultan was in his palace in Istanbul and he appointed somebody to run Syria and he appointed somebody to run Iraq and somebody to run Egypt and he appointed somebody to run Palestine. Now, Palestine was not seen as a good appointment because you couldn't make money on it. There was no way to uh, really become wealthy as the rulers of the other provinces of the Ottoman Empire were able to become wealthy. And therefore, uh, the rulers of Palestine appointed by the Ottomans were, uh, had three qualities to them. They were ignorant, they were cruel, and they were greedy. And uh, that only made the situation in the country worse. Uh, It was corrupt from beginning to end. And it is into this society that Jews started to come, that they began to move to the country. So in the 1700s, Gershon Kittever, who was the brother-in-law of Baal Shem Tov, came. other Hasidim came. In the early 1800s the students of and disciples of the Goan of Vilna came, Uh, other uh, Chabad came, European Jews, Eastern European Ashkenazic Jews came. Now the Arabs had only known Smartic Jews. So it's an interesting thing, the Arabs called any foreigner a Frank, which was the name of a French knight, who in the Crusades they were Franks. So the Arabs called the Svartic Jews Franks, even though they had nothing to do with France. When the Ashkenazim came, so they took the Arab statement that the Sephardim were Franks. And that's the origin of the fact that until today many sections of the Ashkenazic world call the Franks. Now the, the uh, Sultan had allowed the Jews a certain amount of religious autonomy. For instance, Jews were entitled to have their own courts. The chief rabbi, so to speak, of any given country was called the Chacham Bashi. Chacham Bashi meant that he was the Chacham, which is the name, the Sephardic name for a rabbi. And Bashi meant that he was appointed by the Turks and that he had official status. So there was a Chacham Bashi here in the land of Israel who was official the Ashkenazim came here they didn't recognize the Chalcham Bash they did not agree to the Sephardic customs they wanted to have their own shkita, their own meat they wanted to impose their own customs they dressed differently all of which caused Uh, great internal strife in the small Jewish community that existed here in the 1800s. And uh, a lot of what goes on today between let's say uh, Shas and the uh, other religious parties is a carryover from the internal divisions that occurred in the 1800s. The Ashkenazim petitioned to have their own and since it was all corrupt so it was only a question of paying off. So they eventually were able to do so. To further complicate the matter, in the 1800s all of the major powers in Europe were jockeying for position to take over the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was weak, was corrupt, was called the sick man of Europe. So Russia wanted a peace, Russia wanted to, the uh, Bosporus and the Dardanelles to give it access to the Mediterranean, and that's what the Crimean War was fought in the 1860s, 1850s rather. To prevent Russia. So France and England supported Turkey against Russia to prevent Russia from reaching the Mediterranean. Uh, France wanted, uh, Napoleon had already uh, conquered parts of the Middle East in his campaigns in the early 1800s. Napoleon uh, came here to the land of Israel He besieged the city of Acre with Jaco near Haifa, but he could not conquer it. But he had uh, rule over Egypt. Uh, England was always interested in asserting itself in its imperialist days for control of the Middle East. And so slowly, the Ottoman Empire was receding. Uh, Greece broke off and became an independent country. It was a great cause of England, Lord Byron and others, who supported Greek independence. And then uh, parts of the Balkans broke off. The Slavs broke away. Serbia became a country, and the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, uh, threw them out of Hungary. And then they took over uh, Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it looked like whatever you wanted to take from Turkey, you could take. The Ottoman Empire was, uh, for all purposes, uh, a dead man walking. And now the Jews came into the country, small in number, but they were coming. There were uh, uh, 25, 30,000 Jews in the country already. And uh, we all know that uh, 25, 30,000 Jews make noise like 130,000. And since there never were any accurate numbers or population figures, etc., it posed a problem to the Ottoman Empire. Because it's all right to have dhimmis, but these people, first of all, they didn't speak Arabic and they didn't want to speak Arabic, didn't speak Turkish. They had no intention of assimilating into the general population. They had no respect for the Turkish government. So what are you supposed to do with them? But the Jews were uh, fortunate, uh, if we could use that word, because of the fact that all of the European powers created consulates, footholds here in the land of Israel and especially in Jerusalem. So there was an English consulate and the Anglican church sent missionaries to the country and built schools in the country. The French had a consulate. The French sent also missionaries. Not only missionaries, they sent Jewish organizations, the famous Alliance, that made schools and taught French culture and French language throughout the Middle East and here in Palestine and Jerusalem as well. So these things whittled away at the Ottoman Empire. There was the Russian compound which exists until today that Putin wants it back and we're stupid enough to talk to him about it. So the Russians even though in in Russia Jews were persecuted unmercifully here the the Russians said well they are Russian subjects of the Tsar, and our job is to protect them from the Turks to protect them from the Ottomans and therefore and then there was the famous Austrian consulate which was the biggest the Habsburgs who uh, also had great pretensions here, and in the late 1800s the Germans entered here. The Kaiser came. Now there had been an organization called the Templar Knights during the Crusades. The Templar Knights were German, German Christians. They were called Templar because they fought for the temple. And they had established themselves on the island of Rhodes. And uh, the Kaiser uh, revived and refreshed the idea of Templar Knights. And the Kaiser encouraged German immigration to Palestine. The idea of red roofs, which you see throughout the country. That was brought by the Kaiser, by the Templar Knights. They were the first ones to make these red terracotta roofs. And the Kaiser thought that he was going to rule Palestine. It was part of the grand scheme of Germany's place in the sun. In fact there was a very large German population here, the German colony, that existed until World War II. In World War II England uh, rounded them all up and uh, exiled them because they were enemy aliens. But uh, the state of Israel has paid compensation uh, to all the Germans that own property here uh, before the Second World War. So uh, it's a, uh, an amalgamation of all sorts of different forces here. Now let's throw into the mix Zionism. Beginning uh, pre-Zionism begins in the 1870s when the organization of the Lovers of Zion existed in Eastern Europe, the Chove of Then there were the Biluim, that was a small group of people that immigrated, that came to work the land here. And then there was Herzl. Now, Herzl's great dream was that he was going to make a Jewish state somewhere in the world, Preferably in Palestine, but if not in Palestine, wherever he could. Therefore, he agreed to take Uganda when it was offered. Turkey viewed Zionism as its mortal enemy. The Ottoman Empire viewed it, and correctly so, that if Zionism succeeded, the Ottoman Empire would collapse completely. And therefore, uh, its attitude towards the Jewish community then existing in Palestine began to change for the worse. They no longer wanted to treat them as dhimmis; They wanted to treat them as enemies. They felt that the Jews would subvert the Ottoman rule here. Also, by the fact that Jews were coming, some sort of economy was developing, money was coming from overseas, Jewish money was coming from Eastern Europe on a regular basis, and the Zionist movement uh, created organizations such as the Jewish National Fund and the Karanayasod, which was investing money in the country, purchasing land, and the the Ottoman Empire saw all of this as subverting them, destroying their uh, hegemony over the country, they wouldn't be able to control it. And therefore, uh, beginning in 1900, for the 15-20 years till England took over the country the Ottoman Empire instituted a reign of terror here against the Jews so that the early Jewish settlements Merchavia and the other ones in the Galil, the Jews who lived in Jaffa and the Jews who lived here in Jerusalem lived under terrible conditions of poverty, and the Turks stirred up the Arabs with promises of booty and loot, and uh, now you had, if not pogroms, but you had armed attacks on a regular basis. There were two responses by the Jews. One was to try and negotiate with the Turks to, so to speak, try and prove their loyalty. The other one, which was favored by the Zionists, and uh, especially by the new Zionists that were coming here who were not religious, who were basically left-wing idealists, was that they were gonna defend themselves. That the, uh, the days of the Jewish people being passive in face of persecution was going to end. And they organized an organization called Hashomer, the Watchmen. And there were groups uh, uh, that fought off the Bedouin Arabs. Uh, that made raids on the Arab communities, and that fought the Turks. Now, the Turks had uh, borrowed money from the Rothschilds, as did all of Europe, and they were gonna build a railroad together with the British and the French to connect the Suez Canal with uh, the uh, Persian Gulf an overland railroad. Uh, One branch was going to go down to Saudi Arabia, what is today Saudi Arabia to Mecca, but the main branch was to go through Syria over what is present-day Lebanon down to where Rosh is down the coast of Palestine into Egypt into Alexandria and eventually to link up with the Suez Canal. And the Turks started to build that railroad. And it was the major source of employment and wealth uh, during the uh, last part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. The Jews welcomed the railroad because they saw it as a sign of modernization and the Jews felt that if the Turks somehow could be modernized, uh, they would agree, somehow they would agree that with the Zionist dream. Now the Zionists never were practical, that's why we have a state. Why should the Turks agree, under any circumstances, that they're going to give away Palestine to the Zionists. But that was the belief, just as the belief was later that England was going to give it to you. In 1904 there was a revolution in Turkey and a group called the Young Turks came to power. They were nationalists They wanted the Sultan and the old ways gone. They wanted to modernize the country. To paraphrase someone, they wanted to make Turkey great again. (laughs) And uh, they raised an army. They fought wars, some successful, some unsuccessful but now the power of the Sultan was almost non-existent. One of the young Turks was a man by the name of Kemal Pasha, who was a military genius. He would later become the ruler of Turkey and change his name to Ataturk. And enforce the modernization of Turkey and to get rid of the religion within Turkey which has been restored now in our time to the detriment of all in any event the young Turks were bitterly anti-Zionist. they were not willing under any circumstance uh, to uh, relax the hold of the Turks on Palestine. And they raised taxes, they sent extra soldiers into the country, and they absolutely persecuted the Jews from 1900 to 1920. Now, uh, Germany had made an alliance with Turkey. It sent a uh, famous German general to train the Turkish army. Uh, Turkey had ordered uh, two battleships that were being built in the British naval yards. Turkey was going to take on the West. So, when the First World War broke out in 1914, after it had been two Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913, at which Turkey was defeated both times, the uh, British took the battleships away from Turkey. But Turkey entered the war on the side of Germany and Austria. Now the Turks, uh, in the middle of the war in 1915, there was a large Christian Armenian population in Turkey. The Turks held that the Christians were subversive and therefore they exiled them deep into the Caucasus. During that exile, the process of the exile, one and a half million Armenians died. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. Turkey has never owned up to it. And it's a sore point always between all the countries that have relations with Turkey. It's a subject that cannot be raised. They didn't do anything, even though we have movies of what they did. To. In any event, uh, Turkey tried to invade Russia. Russia was then with France and England, the Allies. So it tried to invade Russia from the south. And it met disaster. So the Allies thought that Turkey's a pushover. And therefore Churchill came up with the harebrained scheme that he was going to invade Turkey through the peninsula of Gallipoli. The problem is Gallipoli was commanded by Kemal Pasha who was a tremendously skillful general. The uh, allies uh, did not possess his equal. And Gallipoli turned into an allied disaster. Such a disaster that Churchill had to resign from the war cabinet. The Turks expelled all of the Zionist leaders from Palestine. The Ben-Gurion was in New York. Of Cook was in Switzerland. We will on.
0: continue and actually we will conclude this lecture with our barrel wine and our spoken word uh, format during the nine days coming up here at JM in the AM. Uh, the lecture that uh, we are in the midst of right now. Uh, Jews in the Ottoman Empire and Palestine, and Rabbi Wine will conclude this lecture for us later on in the 8 o'clock hour. Information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, and dot Rabbi com. Rabbi it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegel.com, and the NachimSigl Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. We've been reminding everybody that when you order from our friends at Artscroll, make sure to use promo code RADIO. When you do, you get your discount plus, of course, free shipping. Promo code RADIO whenever you order anything from Artscroll.com. Artscroll is responsible for the brand new book, which I have uh, i have been gobbling up. I've been internalizing it. It's called A Daily Dose of Bitachon, Filling Your Day with Trust and Reliance on Hashem. It's based on Shari Bitachon. It's written by Rabbi David Sutton. Rabbi Sutton, author of many important works, including Beis on Bitachon and Embrace Shabbos, shares with us more than 130 readings designed for the consistent daily use that enables truly effective change. Drawn from the classic wisdom of the *Chovas Alvavos, *Shar HaBitachon, these insights into the service of the heart are remarkably contemporary, speaking to our own challenges. Each reading ends with a practical takeaway, ensuring that we incorporate Bitachon into our everyday encounters. And of course, Rabbi Sutton shares stories that show us the amazing power of Bitachon. Rabbi David Sutton is uh, the rabbi, along with Rabbi Ozeri, at Yad Yosef in Brooklyn, New York. He is with us live via telephone. Rabbi Sutton, a pleasure and an honor to welcome you to JM in the AM.
4: Thank you very much. My pleasure. I've heard a lot about you. I've seen it a lot, and I'm excited to be part of this.
0: I greatly appreciate that. Uh, is, in fact, trust and reliance the best way to translate the word bitachon? Is it better than the word faith?
4: Uh, absolutely. I, w- I actually like the word reliance alone. I use the word trust just because reliance might sound a little too uh, strong, but if you'd like, I could explain the difference between uh, just general faith versus reliance. Oh, I, like.
0: I very much would like that. Please go ahead.
4: So as we know, there's two terminologies. One is called emuna or emuna, and the other one is bitachon or bitachon. So emuna means to have belief or faith. That means right now, I believe that my father can uh, pay my mortgage if need be. I believe that my father has money in the bank, and if I call him, I know he can do it. I'm not relying on him because I have a salary and I can do it on my own. So, faith and means, I know that Hashem could do it. I know right now he could do a lot of things. I believe that. Am I actually relying on him for that? Relying is more active. In order to have tachon, it's not just what you know, you actually are relying, you're leaning on him. We say every single day in our tefillah, Mish'an um istakhla uh, you know what a Mishan means? I like to, when I give a class, I like to ask people. You know what a Mishan is? No, I never was,
0: What is a Mishan?
4: Don't we say it, to a Yes. <laughs> a so what is a Mishan? A Mishan is a cane. It's a cane. Something a Mishanet. When Elisha when brought back the, 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 the child that died, he said, take my Mishanet. Take my cane. So a Mishan is a cane. A, a cane is that you lean on. It's something that God is something that we lean on, not just I know he could do it. I'm actually leaning on him. I'm counting on him.
0: Big difference. Uh, That's for sure. Uh, (laughs) Why does it take so much of an effort in order to get to that level when one needs to or understands the importance of relying on Hashem? And I say it like that because when one tries to obtain knowledge, Uh, We know that, you know, one one studies and one learns. And the more we know, the more it seems we don't know, right? We understand that there's so much more that we just don't know. When it comes to bitachon, when it comes to trust and reliance on Hashem, one would think that it's such a, a simple concept. Look around you. Anybody who looks around us, you know, sees this world, sees all the miraculous things that happen every single day, including us waking up this morning. Why would it be so difficult? Why would it be so foreign or so hard for us to obtain this reliance on God when it's so much in front of us and, 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 and envelops our entire life?
4: That is a truly a good question. Um, on one hand, you're right. If you open your eyes, you see, like you said, the beautiful world outside. I'm sitting right now in Deal, New Jersey, and uh, it actually it's not a uh, sunny day, but it's still the beautiful foliage and it's just a, a wonderful sight to see. But, there's a big but, which is, at the same time I'm sitting here, I see the uh, traffic light is being fixed by some construction workers. They got their truck there, they got their cones out, and they're doing things. We see a world where people are doing a lot. And as much as we might have in our head that Hashem is in charge of the world, we say every morning Hashem Echad, but the, it says, it was once heard the name of the czar, but we close our eyes when we say, Kriya why do we close our eyes? Why can I just say, Shema Yisrael Hashem O'Kaneh with my eyes open? And the answer is because everything we see with our eyes is really contrary. We're getting constant messages that if I don't go to work, I don't make money, if I don't go to the doctor, I don't get better, if I don't go to the lawyer, I don't win the case. So there are so many uh, contrary messages that although B'Tachem seems simple, but we're almost conditioning ourselves like you train the dog. We're being trained almost by all our actions that we do, and when we do, things happen. And now to counter that with our bitachon is really a
0: challenge. And the only way to do this, the only way to counter it, the only way to defeat the messaging that you just described is to make sure that we are surrounded with bitachon, surrounded with the concept of reliance on Hashem on a daily basis, hence the title, A Daily Dose of Bitachon. Because if we don't hammer this home into our heads every single day, if we don't do something to make sure to keep this uh, in the forefront for us every single day, we're not going to to be able to achieve what seems to be that that, that 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 ever that 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 concept, that idea, that Hashem is in charge, and that there's no other to rely on.
4: Correct. We actually say it in Aleinu Shabbach every day. V'yadata hayom, Know today, put it on your heart. Hashem al kimi section That God is in charge. Nothing else but Him. Ain't all, there's nothing else but Him. Which says the Hayom. No today. And what do the rabbis say on that, that means every single day. We say in Aleinu al-Shabek, every day I need a daily dose. <laughs> That's it's right. not enough to have it in your head, but as Shivotal put it into your heart, which is another big challenge. You started off talking about knowledge. Right. Knowledge is a great thing. But to go from your brain to your heart, what Itzul of Pettenberg said, is like going from the heavens to the earth. The gap, the space between your head and your heart is light years. It's at, light years. So the data and the shabota.
0: And I wonder if the Hayom in Vayadata Hayom also refers to the fact in a way that today is all we have. Hashem has proven to us through all the yesterdays that he's there for us. And we rely on the fact that tomorrow and you know henceforth he's gonna be there for us. That that he's gonna make sure that sun rises every single day for us and please God that we'll be able to say modahani and thank him for our for our neshama, you know, every single morning. Henceforth, please God, everyone should be well. But today is all we have. Today, today is the day. That we have to concentrate on and make sure to, to address.
4: Well, that's that's beautiful. What he's saying about today is the day, because part of itachon is don't think about the future. Itachon means right now. People are worried. People are miserable about what's going to be with my stock portfolio. What's going to be with my business? What's going to be all the what's going to be? Let's look at today. What's your today look like? You had breakfast already. You had your cup of coffee. You have a bed. You have your family today is a great day. We get miserable because of tomorrow's. Tomorrow is the not even here today. Like it says Al Tid Sarat Ben according to the says, Don't worry about tomorrow's problem. Tomorrow's problem is not here. We get stuck in tomorrow. What's gonna be? You today you're basking and bathing in God's kindness right now. The point that you said is that it's really a you tried to, you I got to quote, uh, Stiegel, <laughs> a quote of Malcolm Siegel in
0: the new pshaname, That's your own shot I mean, I, I, I incorporated it into the, you know, there are so many great sayings in both the Jewish and secular world that m- remind us to concentrate only on today. You know, there's the, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is, uh, you know, some would say a promissory no. Today's all we got, so to speak. So <laughs> I guess I incorporated some of that into that thought.
4: It's interesting, as a side note, not related to B'Tachon, but the Vilna Gaon says, quoted by the Chafetz Chaim in a B'Ruchon Lovovitz, when a person gets up in the morning, he should say the following three things. I only have today, I only have this daf gemara, and the only person in the world that's learning is me. Because mm-hmm. we always think, oh, there's somebody else, oh, there's tomorrow, oh, there's so much to do, No. It's you, it's today, and what you have to do today. That's the whole story. Yeah. But that's
0: an aside. Sometimes takes a lifetime to incorporate that sometimes takes a lifetime Absolutely. sometimes takes a lifetime to work on that and and frankly the Sharbi Tachan look I I've, I've spoken about Sharbi Tachan many many times on the air and those who've written about Sharbi Tachan have been invited and we've had these conversations on the air it, it is unbelievable those who've never explored it uh, should really take out the text and and understand what the uh, Chovos Halvavos is about and how the Sharbi Tachon is such a centerpiece uh, to, to his writing and to his legacy uh, but look the the basic point is that um, uh, that we have a father in heaven who takes care of us like, like a father would, like a really, really, really reliable father would. <laughs> you know, the best father imaginable. And it is sometimes difficult to remember that, and that's why we need daily reminders about it, and uh, that's why this book is so important. The book is entitled The Daily Dose of Bitachon, Filling Your Day with Trust and Reliance on Hashem, By David Sutton is with us live via telephone. He is the author of the book. It's an Art Scroll selection. Go to artscroll.com and... Uh, and you'll see how this will enhance uh, every single day for you. Um, the, uh, you give a lot of examples, a lot of different directions of how people can go about uh, incorporating bitachon into their, uh, uh, into their lives, including these practical takeaways that are in every single uh, chapter that you write. And one of the things I found interesting, obviously we can't do all of them, but one of the things I found interesting, uh, one of your takeaways is when a Torah obligation comes your way that makes you want to say, why Hashem? What did I do to deserve this? Realize that Hashem really is viewing was as deserving of the opportunity to meet a challenge with Bittachon, to do a mitzvah, and to earn merit. I mean, you would argue, and I guess the Shar Bittachon, Chovas would argue, that certain mitzvos are literally incorporated into our lives in order to increase our reliance on and our devotion to God.
4: Absolutely. I mean, um, one of them is what the Damar Mbeta says, the things that I call come out of your slush fund, <laughs> meaning there are, there are uh, your tuition, your money that you spend on Shabbat, the money you spend on Rosh Chodesh and Yom Tov, and the Ritzvah says all mitzvot for that matter really come out of your slush fund. That means when God decides you're going to make X amount of dollars this year, your money is decided not based uh, on, on what you're going to spend on religion, and that's that your slush fund. If it, people would really realize that, you know, people will build houses or bungalows or they don't, they don't have bungalows anymore, but whatever, maybe a summer <laughs> home, right. wherever you live from, you know, from the north to the south. And people are, you know, putting in all kind of uh, expensive uh, hardware and whatever it may be into their homes and the, the knobs and the and the barbell in the kitchen and, you know, summer homes today – you know, the, uh, the current summer homes are nicer than our grandparents' all-year-round homes. Yep. And then when it comes to buying your mezuzah, suddenly, you know what? I want to buy the $80 one, the $250 mezuzah. Like, come on, $250 for mezuzah? But if someone told you the mezuzah is not coming out of your account, that's coming out of your slush fund. And, hey, what is it? It's, a, it's a, you know, it's a pennies a day for your entire life. And, you know, that, that attitude of how to spend money on mitzvahs, and where to be cheap and where not to be cheap? You know, what's like, hold on. <laughs> you mean I was uh, selling my book in the deal synagogue and I said, you know what? If people are having all different kind of problems with selling their inventory, I got $25 over here is going to solve all your inventory problems or 30, whatever the book costs. Solve all your inventory problems. People suddenly like book at what? Books today are $30? $30? You can't go to a restaurant alone today for lunch and get away with less than $30.
0: <laughs> and when you say it'll solve your inventory products, you have to expound on that. What do you mean by that?
4: That means there are many people in our custodian community that I'm part of that have uh, warehouses of goods now. And due to the inflation and the people not having money for the basics, uh, warehouses are full of goods that they got to get rid of. And people are looking at ways, how do I, ha- how do I get rid of all my pr- goods? How do I sell them? there's only one answer the answer is a lie on a cutter's broker because he can make it happen he can make anything fly out of, the, out, of the, out of the office fly out of the warehouse he just you know sprays a little charm on your product and suddenly everybody
0: wants it and when and, that's, uh, and, when, and when one is standing at the uh, uh, at the door of uh, his warehouse, uh, and is looking at you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory, and and not knowing how long it's going to stay in that large room, it could be it could be a big uh, faith test, right?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's a story told in, during the Corona era. There was a man that was uh, he bought before Corona started. He bought a warehouse full of masks. <laughs> As because it was on sale and he, and he was sitting there for a year, he didn't know what to do with it. He was just, you know, paying warehouse fees, and suddenly Corona comes, and he can't keep up with the demand. I'm not saying we need another Corona, but we need to have some Hashem could bring something that suddenly we need T-shirts. I don't know what it's going to be. That's whatever it may be. Hashem can do anything, and it's all up to us to rely on Him to bring it about.
0: You know, you write on page one twenty-nine about Birkat Hamazon, and we've spoken many times on these uh, airwaves about the language that we use uh, when we thank Hashem for the bread and for the meals that we've eaten berkatamazon folks is benching is the the grace we say after a uh, after we've completed a full meal and and some of the words that are included uh, are tamid and through his great goodness we've never lacked and maybe never lacked nourishment For all eternity. He's always been there for us. He's always been there with the, whether it's actual food or mazon, whatever is necessary for us uh, to continue to sustain ourselves. Hashem has always been there for us. And we say this every single time we bench, we say this every single time we've completed a meal, and yet again, it is so difficult to internalize. Now, one of the tips that you actually give is to increase our concentration on Birkatama zone and recite that first bracha, that opening paragraph, but you know, slowing down and concentrating on it as much as possible. That can be uh, you know, hopefully that'll become a habit for people to focus on and to, you know, understand that he that he with a big H is always there for us. Why is that paragraph so vital?
4: Well, you know, Birkata Mazon is the uh, only uh, Birakha that is from the Torah, according to all opinions. Some include Birkata Torah, the blessing we make on the Torah, but everyone's in agreement that Birkata Mazon is the blessing that comes from the Torah. That's the one, the other ones are rabbinical. When we say Shahakal, of course you have to do it, but it comes from the rabbis. It comes from a the sources. is, it's a strong, a strong rabbinical law, but it's not a, uh, what are the 613? Now, what is it about Birkatamazon that's so important? And Rabbein Abachi and others explain that after a person eats, he automatically forgets. There's a power of eating that we say, pen lest you forget. Mm-hmm. When you're on a full stomach, you forget. That's why when a person's enjoying, it's not just a full stomach, it's any success. Success causes us to feel, I did it. And then we start to forget about a Kadosh Baruch and that's when you need your dose. That's when you need to really, and that's why it's hard to say Brikat Mazon. We, you know, sad to say we sometimes avoid it. we rather get mazonas Miz- bread, as they call it, because right. we don't like to go through that, that uh, process right. of saying Bricata
0: if you find yourself sleepless from stress about business or expenses, imagine you are turning your accounts over to Hashem. He has the password to your bank account. By the way, this is Rabbi Sutton writing. He has password to your bank account and full access to your finances. He tells you, go to sleep. I'll take care of it. <laughs> I know you're right, but it's it's such a madraga. It is such a level to get to that point. It could be frustrating trying to get to that point.
4: So let me tell you for a regular person, as you mentioned, there's another book called Embrace Shabbat, right. which we worked on. And in there we bring down, it's also in the Beit HaLevi, uh, another great work. The Beit HaLevi, If you have these two books together, the Chobos Lovers and Beit HaLevi, you're in good shape. But the Beit HaLevi uh, talks about uh, when there's nothing else to do, then you're really absolved of any ishtadlut, any effort. You did everything you can. There's nothing else to do. So really, uh, we never could say there's nothing else to do in our heads. But when it comes Shabbat, there's nothing else to do. Friday night comes, there's nothing else to do. Because right. you can't go to work tomorrow. And therefore, the best time to work on what you call this very high level of giving everything over to God, it's really an obligation every Shabbat because it says, ki ilu asuya. You have to Imagine Friday night, your work is finished. That means you just sold your business for $100 million, and there's nothing to do. You're going to buy it back again Monday morning, or, or Sunday morning, or what's what's say Shabbat. But for 24 hours, you sold your business. And therefore, even a the person on a lower level is being asked to have that level of bitachon on Shabbat that I gave my business away. I can't talk about it, and technically, Rabbi Neonah says I shouldn't even be thinking about it. And that's an opportunity to work on that high level at least once a week. Because there really is nothing to do. Even if we have to do Ishtad Lut during the week, we might have to think about it during the week. But Hashem told you on Shabbat, it's unnecessary. Don't do anything. The boss is telling you, take the day off. Don't do anything. And that's a good training ground for this concept.
0: Yeah, I hear that. A daily dose of Bitachon, filling your day with trust and reliance in Hashem. We're speaking to her by David Sutton. This book is written based on Shar HaBitachon. I think the the most frustrating part, and I think people are getting the idea from what we've uh, spoken about in terms of the book, in terms of some of the uh, pieces of advice that you give at the end of each uh, uh, one of these readings. I, I think the most frustrating part is is how much work is necessary because it's not just a it's not just doing this on a daily basis and trying to internalize this through all the different examples and all the different stories. But in addition to that, even when one does that, it is so hard. To, to actually you know, not roll one's eyes at this whole concept. I mean, it, it is still mind-boggling to me, maybe because I'm getting older, it is mind-boggling to me that we are surrounded by miracles. I mean, when you think about it, every little thing that goes on on a daily basis is an absolute miracle that is being performed by God for us. And with all of that, it is so difficult to, to hand over one's fate to the one above, is there in addition to do? Is that the only answer? Is the answer just making sure to concentrate on this on a daily basis and spending as much time on this as possible? Is there any other any other way to to go ahead and uh, and, and and realize how how real all of this is? Well,
4: the, the the fact, like you said, that it's so hard, and even though it's so obvious, it's really it's uh, we almost say I could say we're hard wired in a way that on is hard because. We have built into us a, a feeling of, I did it. We have a feeling of, you know, I'm here and I did it. That's what's called yeah. Kohiva Otsimia means even a little child, Revolver writes, it's really it's about Gava, it's about arrogance. Uh, Revolver writes, a little child, when he starts to walk, he's all proud of himself. A child gets on a bicycle, hey, mom, look, no hands. Like as if he's he's doing things. We have, we're hardwired, that God made it that we feel like we're in charge. He gave us that, that almost that uh, good feeling that we're doing things. And at the same time, to realize as much as it looks like you're doing, you're really not doing. It's a very hard, constant struggle. I mean, the greatest of the greats, and Balazhan. Who's greater than that? Abhaim Balazhan, students are going to Vilna. We bring the story down there. He's seen once walking and he has some leeches on him because in those days they believed in leech therapy, which today is becoming more commonly believed as well. Right. And he's, uh, he has, he's wearing these leeches, and then he goes into a class being given by the, the greatest of the greats, the Gaon of Vilma, talking on Bitach, in the middle of the thing, he says, that's it, I don't need these leeches, and he has them removed. And a few hours later, they see the leeches are back on, he says, what happened? And He says, while I was sitting there in the shiur, in the class, in the Gaon of Vilma, I was so clear, I felt I don't need the leeches anymore. But as time went on, it dissipated. So this, <sighs> this is the greatest of the greats, admitting to the fact that it's just, it's just really, like you said, it's a constant, constant yeah. work. And I feel in like when I'm talking or I'm giving a class on it, I'm supercharged. Right. And then it wears off. And I believe because I speak. So you have to learn about it, speak about it. I mean, people, there are a lot of people with the betel the, with the, uh, and it's not just about, you know, my book, by David Asher has an unbelievable series called Living a Muna with school right. as well. He's up right. to the sixth volume. And there's people all over the world that have uh, daily groups. They get on the phone together and they talk it over and they read a lesson a day. And that's, you know, that's everything. You've got to just keep on working at it. And you know what? It slowly like Rabbi Etivan, the rock it it penetrates.
0: Right, It does penetrate. Look, that's the frustrating part that it sometimes feels unattainable. But uh, you know, slowly but surely, and, and it's never going to be perfect. That one would one would you know have to I guess come to the reality, especially with the Torah giants that you described, who also struggled with it. It may never be perfect, but it, the better it gets, the, the the better one's life is, and the better they feel about life. Rabbi Sutton, do you sometimes think about how different it is in this generation? In other words, um, if if in fact. There's a difference. The way you describe the bicycle example, to me, it's sort of like Bichirachavshi. Uh, and asiyachavshi, like that, we actually do have free will. But when we do something, we have to understand that we're doing it with the help of God, and it's not us alone who are right, who right. are doing it. Do you sometimes right. think? Do you sometimes think it was different in other generations, or that's not fair? Every generation, even with the, because today people might think you know with the with the wealth, the technology, the luxury, you know, being able to do something with the press of a button, so that really gives you the you know, uh, of—
4: Actually, what he's saying is something really brilliant. The Cholos lovovo says in another shahar, he has a line that goes like this, uh, as as much as the world develops, the seichel becomes destroyed. Wow. His intellect becomes destroyed. And he brings wow. it well, well, down. Well, well seichel, he,
0: he means intellect or common sense or both when he says seichel there. So,
4: uh, so simply he means, the simple, I shouldn't say simple, Rovovo once explained it as if you have a camera, you lose your ability to look at the scenery. If you have a calculator, you lose your ability to, c- to add numbers. Right. Technology makes the man smaller. Right. But the Cholos of goes and actually quotes a pasuk in, in connection to B'tachon that you're going to make a lot of money and forget Hashem, which means the more technology we have, the more we're, so to say, in control of the world. We're, I was in a restaurant recently, believe it or not, in Lakewood, and they had a robot delivery thing that's going around. You oh. put the, the, the waiter it puts it under, it zooms around to the table and it, it delivers. So we, we're so uh, proud of our work. You don't even, use, you need the human being, God's creation getting more and more removed from right. God and more stooped in. I did it. Cause Hey, uh, there are people that don't even know where products come from. It just comes right. from the, from the shelf in the supermarket. Right. You know, I have a friend that is uh, it's a cute story. Uh, he was going out with a, a girl. He ended up dropping her uh, because he, he felt that her level of intellect wasn't up to par, and she didn't know that eggs came from chickens. Wow.
0: And you, yeah. you actually write in the book about the importance of sitting with one's food and starting to think about where it came from and what ingredients God exactly. created.
4: But that's my point. There are people, there's a, someone out there, I hope she's not listening, <laughs> that didn't know an egg came from a chicken because, hey, you just, we don't even think where things come from. That Where does coffee know. come from? The whole process. Oh, you know, I just just go there in Starbucks. It's there. You know, wh- where's the? Uh,
0: and not only that, let's that, that
4: yeah, Starbucks. I, I, let's just I, qualify. I, should you eat in Starbucks or not? have stuff and out of I'm
0: just using the Starbucks right. as an example. So. Uh, understood, uh, and of course, uh, then the added component of how something is delivered and distributed and gets to that shelf, etc. I mean the 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 work and the ingenuity and the manpower that's required, all of course, you know, uh, g- coming from the in- incredible gift that that everybody in that process has from the one above. It's right. As simple as that, which is.
4: Malcolm I think we're coming. We're coming to a close. I think. Is it is it uh, acceptable? I give a shout out to a neighbor of mine that's a real big fan of yours.
0: Are you kidding? Would be my honor.
4: So there's a lady her name is Judy Landa. She's a neighbor of mine. She comes sometimes Friday night, and she will just rave about the Nuckham Siegel show. It's her (laughs) favorite, favorite show. I hope she's listening now. She's a great,
0: she's really a fan. She's a great listener. And I appreciate you mentioning her. And, uh, and, and I'm glad that uh, she's spreading the word about what we do every single day. And speaking of every single day, I, I hope people take the opportunity to explore the daily dose of Bitachon. It is uh, one of the bandwagons that I hopped on uh, years ago uh, when I was uh, reassured by a friend of mine during a very difficult time for me that uh, the only thing to do is to rely on the one above and as 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 much as i explore this topic and as much as your book and others have been such an incredible inspiration it is it's it is a frustrating to go through this daily battle but as you described by Sutton it's the only approach everyone's got to battle this everyone's going to has to you know make sure to be inspired by it i don't want to use a negative word like battle everyone has to be inspired by it every single day it's the only way
4: Okay, thank you and
0: welcome. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you joining us this morning. Mazal tov on the book, and thanks for uh, thanks for bringing us to a higher level of trust and reliance on Hashem.
4: Thank you so
0: much. Rabbi David Sutton, everybody. The book is entitled The Daily Dose of Bitachon, Filling Your Day with Trust and Reliance on Hashem. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And yes, it's hard. It's a struggle sometimes, but everybody out there, you, had to t- you take my word for it. Uh, no matter how old or young you are. It is worth doing this on a daily basis and making sure to keep in the, uh, in the forefront of our minds who, in fact, is in charge and who we rely on on a daily basis. Seven days a week, every single day of the year. Reliance on Hashem is the only way. And uh, a big yesh of by David Sutton. Go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code RADIO when you do, when you order anything from artscroll.com, including the brand-new book by David Sutton. A major discount plus free shipping when you use promo code RADIO. Make sure to do that. More coming up. You're listening to a and broadcast for a, a for a uh, Monday morning. Uh, I want to thank everybody that has been uh, sending us wonderful wishes from around the world through the app and through email and many many other methods. <laughs> These days, you have a million different methods. Um, mazal Tov to uh, Kayla and Benjamin Siegel, proud parents of uh, our brand new granddaughter um, Esther. Liel, uh, who was born Thursday night, was named Friday on Rosh Chodesh, and that's why Matis was in on Friday. And I, I can't thank Matis enough, always there for us. Good times, bad times, always there, as uh, so many staff members and volunteers are for us here at the Yenachem Siegel Network. So a big thank you to Matis for sitting at the last minute so we could be at the baby naming. And of course, to the uh, extended Levinson and Siegel families, to uh, Naomi and Stephen Levinson and Woodmere, also celebrating. Their first grandchild, and uh, to my uh, in-laws and all the uh, great grandparents out there, to uh, Gail and Itzy Weintraub, and to the extended family on the Siegel and um, and Levinson sides, we say Mazalta from all of us here at JM and the What an amazing and incredible uh, and wonderful uh, Simcha this is, and I thank all of you for again sharing in it with us the same way you've shared in so many great smachot with us over the years all right let's conclude the lecture by beryl wine uh he's uh, speaking to us uh, about a uh, topic entitled jewish societies in retrospect this is jews in the ottoman empire and palestine rabbi beryl wine on a monday morning broadcast at jm in the a.m
1: And therefore, and then there was the famous Austrian consulate, which was the biggest, the Habsburgs, who uh, also had great pretensions here. And in the late 1800s, the Germans entered here, the Kaiser came. Now, there had been an organization called the Templar Knights during the Crusades. The Templar Knights were German, German Christians. They were called Templar because they fought for the temple. And they had established themselves on the island of Rhodes. And uh, the Kaiser uh, revived and refreshed the idea of Templar Knights. And the Kaiser encouraged German immigration to Palestine. The idea of red roofs, which you see throughout the country, that was brought by the Kaiser, by the Templar Knights. They were the first ones to make these red terracotta roofs. And the Kaiser thought that he was going to rule Palestine. It was part of the grand scheme of Germany's place in the sun. In fact, there was a very large German population here. the German colony. That existed until World War II. In World War II, England uh, rounded them all up and uh, exiled them because they were enemy aliens. But uh, the state of Israel has paid compensation uh, to all the Germans that owned property here uh, before the Second World War. So uh, it's a, uh, an amalgamation of all sorts of different forces here. Now let's throw into the mix Zionism. Beginning uh, pre-Zionism begins in the 1870s when the organization of the lovers of Zion existed in Eastern Europe, the Chove of <laughs> Then there were the Biluim, that was a small group of people that immigrated that came to work the land here. And then there was Herzl. Herzl's great dream was that he was going to make a Jewish state somewhere in the world, preferably in Palestine, but if not in Palestine, wherever he could. Therefore he agreed to take Uganda when it was offered. Turkey viewed Zionism as its mortal enemy. The Ottoman Empire viewed it and correctly so, that if Zionism succeeded, the Ottoman Empire would collapse completely. And therefore, uh, its attitude towards the Jewish community then existing in Palestine began to change for the worse. They no longer wanted to treat them as dhimmis. They wanted to treat them as enemies. They felt that the Jews would subvert the Ottoman rule here. Also, by the fact that Jews were coming, some sort of economy was developing, money was coming from overseas, Jewish money was coming from Eastern Europe on a regular basis, and the Zionist movement Uh, created organizations such as the Jewish National Fund and the Karanayasod, which was investing money in the country, purchasing land and the the Ottoman Empire saw all of this as subverting them destroying their uh, hegemony over the country. They wouldn't be able to control it. And therefore uh, beginning in 1900 for the 15-20 years till England took over the country the, the Ottoman Empire instituted a reign of terror here against the Jews so that the early Jewish settlements Merchavia and the other ones in the Galil Jews who lived in Jaffa, and the Jews who lived here in Jerusalem, lived under terrible conditions of poverty, and the Turks stirred up the Arabs with promises of booty and loot. And uh, now you had, if not pogroms, but you had armed attacks on a regular basis there were two responses by the Jews one was to try and negotiate with the Turks to so to speak try and prove their loyalty the other one which was favored by the Zionists and uh, especially by the new Zionists that were coming here to who were not religious, who were basically left-wing idealists, was that they were going to defend themselves. That the, uh, the days of the Jewish people being passive in face of persecution was going to end. And they organized an organization called Hashomer, the Watchmen, and there were groups uh, uh, that fought off the Bedouin Arabs, uh, that made raids on the Arab communities, and that fought the Turks. Now the Turks had uh, borrowed money from the Rothschilds, as did all of Europe and they were going to build a railroad together with the British and the French to connect the Suez Canal with uh, the uh, Persian Gulf, an overland railroad. Uh, One branch was going to go down to Saudi Arabia, what is today Saudi Arabia, to Mecca. But the main branch was to go through Syria over what is present-day Lebanon, down to where Rosh HaNikra is, down the coast of Palestine, into Egypt, into Alexandria, and eventually to link up with the Suez Canal. And the Turks started to build that railroad and it was the major source of employment and wealth Uh, during the uh, last part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. The Jews welcomed the railroad because they saw it as a sign of modernization. And the Jews felt that if the Turks somehow could be modernized, uh, they would agree Somehow they would agree that with the Zionist dream. Now the Zionists never were practical. That's why we have a state. Why should the Turks agree under any circumstances that they're going to give away Palestine to the Zionists? But that was the belief, just as the belief was later that England was going to give it to you. In 1904 there was a revolution in Turkey and a group called the Young Turks came to power. They were nationalists, Uh, they wanted the Sultan and the old ways gone, they wanted to modernize the country. To paraphrase someone, they wanted to make Turkey great again. And uh, they raised an army, they fought wars, some successful, some unsuccessful. But now the power of the Sultan was almost non-existent. One of the young Turks was a man by the name of Kemal Pasha was a military genius. He would later become the ruler of Turkey and change his name to Ataturk and enforce the modernization of Turkey and to get rid of the religion within Turkey which has been restored now in our time to the detriment of all. In any event, the young Turks were bitterly anti-Zionist, and they were not willing under any circumstance uh, to uh, relax the hold of the Turks on Palestine, and they raised taxes, they sent extra soldiers into the country, and they absolutely persecuted the Jews from 1900 to 1920. Now uh, Germany had made an alliance with Turkey. It sent a uh, famous German general to train the Turkish army. Uh, Turkey had ordered uh, two battleships that were being built and the British naval yards, Turkey was going to take on the West. So when the First World War broke out in 1914, after it had been two Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913, at which Turkey was defeated both times, the uh, British took the battleships away from Turkey, but Turkey entered the war on the side of Germany and Austria. Now the Turks, uh, in the middle of the war in 1915, there was a large Christian Armenian population in Turkey. The Turks held that the Christians were subversive and therefore they exiled them deep into the Caucasus. During that exile, the process of the exile, one and a half million Armenians died. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. Turkey has never owned up to it. And it's a sore point always between all the countries that have relations with Turkey. It's a subject that cannot be raised. They didn't do anything, even though we have movies of what they did. To. In any event, Uh, Turkey tried to invade Russia. Russia was then with France and England, the allies. So it tried to invade Russia from the south. And it meant disaster. So the allies thought that Turkey's a pushover. And therefore Churchill came up with the harebrained scheme that he was going to invade Turkey through the peninsula of Gallipoli. The problem is, Gallipoli was commanded by Kemal Pasha, who was a tremendously skillful general. And the uh, allies uh, did not possess his equal. And Gallipoli turned into an allied disaster. Such a disaster that Churchill had to resign from the war cabinet. The Turks expelled all of the Zionist leaders from Palestine. The Ben-Gurion was in New York. The Cook was in Switzerland and then in London. Everybody was somewhere else. Nobody was in the country. And the whole Zionist enterprise, so to speak, teetered because uh, it had no leadership and there was no immigration. Not only that, the Jewish population declined by 25 percent during the war and the Jews were starved and there was disease. It was a terrible time. Had uh, Germany and Turkey won the war, You know that's one of the great ifs, because as late as 1918 it looked like Germany was going to win the war. So what would have happened here? Undoubtedly what would have happened is that all the Jews would have been expelled. Certainly the European Jews, but Turkey did not win the war and out of the war came the Balfour Declaration, and later the British Mandate, and the greatest revival of the Zionist movement that they could have ever imagined. Now when England took over, and we still have vestiges of that today, they kept a lot of Turkish law in the country especially regarding real estate. So uh, in this country you have Israeli law, British law, and Turkish law, and a smattering of Jewish law. And that's why we have the most lawyers per capita of any country in the world. And that's why everything is so complicated here. And the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Out of the Ottoman Empire, Kemal Pasha took over the country. He renamed himself Ataturk, and he created modern Turkey. Greece attempted to invade Turkey and take territory and the uh, Ataturk defeated them, took back all the territory, but out of the Ottoman Empire were carved artificial countries which exist until today. Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Arabia, Yemen, All of these countries were drawn on a map with a pencil. And uh, they're countries. Even though the population is basically Arab, and the Arab population is homogeneous, and most of the populations do not have much loyalty to the governments that rule them, because they see themselves as part of a greater uh, pan-Arab, pan-Muslim world that they belong to. When uh, the uh, Ataturk took over, he banned any public display of religion. All the mosques were closed. All the churches were closed. All the synagogues were closed. Everybody had to go underground. You could not wear the fez or Arab dress in the street. You couldn't wear a kippah. You could recognize Jews in uh, Istanbul by who was wearing a baseball cap. Any public display of any religion was banned. He did to Turkey what the Communists did to Russia to the Soviet Union. Completely eliminated religion. The only thing is, just as in the Soviet Union when the Communist regime collapsed, religion came back because it had always been there. So the same thing here we see in our time that the uh, religion, the Muslim, it all has come back and come back in, in, in a strong and even extremist form. There was a Jewish population in Turkey between 25 to 40,000 Jews. They still live there today. They're very, very low-key. Turkey uh, never joined in the wars against Israel. Uh, It has a, a strange relationship with us. Sometimes good, sometimes different. But out of all of the Muslim countries, it's the country that has, so to speak, the most normal relations with us. I mean, you've got Turkish Airlines that flies here. uh, For a long period of time, uh, there was tremendous Jewish tourism to Turkey. There was Turkish tourism to Israel. The uh, terrorism has diminished that. But uh, it's a uh, process. But uh, the Jews who had to live here in the beginning of the 20th century under Ottoman rule had a very, very terrible, terrible time of it. And that's one of the miracles, so to speak. It's certainly one of the historic events that the uh, Allies won the First World War and not the Central Powers, because otherwise there certainly would not have been a possibility of the State of Israel or Jewish existence here in the Holy Land, coming into existence.
0: This- J.M. in the A.M., the uh, the series is entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. That was Rabbi Wein's lecture on the uh, Jews in the Ottoman Empire in Palestine. Tomorrow we'll have an opportunity to hear about Jews in the United States. Also tomorrow the um, discussion about the the process of kidney donation, As we continue to try to help our good friend, Dr. Jay Bienenfeld, we'll speak to our friends from Renewal tomorrow. And um, that'll be at about, uh, I think that's at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, That is going to be at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And uh, our good friend, Dr. Faye Zakheim, is going to join us in the 7 o'clock hour tomorrow. We've had a couple of different events that are going on all happening here at JM in the AM. I want to thank everybody again uh, on the uh, miles of Wishes on the birth of our granddaughter, Esther Liel. Uh, mom and daughter are doing great. My daughter-in-law, Kayla, my son, Benjamin, proud parents of a brand-new baby girl. I want to thank Matis, who, as he has done so many times in the last 40 years, sat in on Friday so I could be at the baby naming on Rosh Chodesh. Thank you, Matis. Much appreciated. And all of us should continue to share some achot together in this unique forum. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, one 800 wein 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. RabbiW-E-I-N.com. A reminder from our friends at AH, Abels and Hyman, it is the nine days. Make sure when you go shopping that you purchase enough delicious hot dogs, all varieties, and great meat products from AH, that they're in your fridge and freezer, and you're all set for After Tishabov, which is being observed this coming Sunday. When Monday arrives, you want to make sure a week from today you have everything you need at the ready. And that's a very important reminder from our friends at Abels and Hyman. For our friends at a h go to kosherdogs.net. Enjoy a 10% discount with promo code radio. Again, kosherdogs.net, 10% discount with promo code radio. The word Av is the focus of uh, May Ear Me Lim, or by Benji Kramer coming up right after Jam in the AM. We're in the month of of. Uh, my son is now an Av, a father. <laughs> and we'll find out more about the word Av. From Rabbi Benji Kramer, Mayir Me Lim, coming up right after JM and the AM here on the Nahum Segal Network. Achena and Achim Achema, brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Or to listen sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, on the Nahum Segal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. I want to give a special shout out to Avrami. That would be the one and only Avrami Finkelstein. He and his family are back in Israel, Baruch Hashem. But somehow, even while traveling the world for the last month, he has uh, made sure to keep us going and take care of every little detail that needs to be done behind the scenes to make sure the Nachum Siegel Network continues to function. And I do not take that uh, lightly. I take it very seriously, and I thank him very, very much, he and his family, for all their efforts. So thank you, Avrami, and welcome back to the Holy Land. Thanks so much for tuning in. Tomorrow morning, we're back starting at 6 a.m. Don't forget, Rabbi Benji Kramer is next with me, Irmi Lim. Have a fabulous Monday until tomorrow. I'm going to go reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.